0: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Dan Warnsheis. at Utopia Vineyard. Uh, it's February 4th, 2020. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for joining us today. We appreciate this. Thank you, Rick. Uh, so we'll start with the uh, most important question. Why wine?
1: Well, um, that's a really good question. And there's, uh, you know, it's a multifaceted reason. But I mean, I actually was, um, I'll try not to go too far back. But when I was growing up, I grew up in Fresno, California and I was a competitive swimmer, swam for the, uh, for the um, Fresno Swim Club for 13 years and I was an all-American high school swimmer and I earned a full-ride scholarship to Michigan State for swimming um, and my high school coach who was one of my mentors um, he was a math and science teacher mm-hmm. and he was a swim coach and I looked up to him among other adults that I knew but um, I thought that I, those were things that I, three things I liked, and I thought, well, I'll teach and I'll do swimming coaching and that'll be a great life. And so when I um, went to Michigan State, um, I was into sciences and math and um, got a Bachelor of Science degree there and was coming back to California to teach and coach. And when I came back to California, my parents had moved from Fresno to the Bay Area and my dad knew a hiring manager at Tektronix and he got me an interview and they hired me and my teaching aspirations kinda of melted away at that point when they told me how much they were gonna pay me <laughs> and, um, and I had up to that point in my life I really hadn't had any, ever had really good wine. I'd had a lot of crummy wine and beer in college um, but but never really knew anything about really good wine, but my first boss at Tektronix was an amateur chef and he was a wine collector. And he invited me to dinner at his home and he turned me on to First Growth Bordeaux, And I became very enamored um, through that experience. And after I'd been working for a couple years, I converted um, the laundry room in my first home to a wine cellar. And I started collecting because of something I aspired to. And um, after a few years, I filled up my cellar and I learned a lot about wine because I was very interested in it. And um, I decided to get licensed and I turned that into an import-export business in Napa, California. And um, that was my first foray into the wine business. I was more interested in the business side of it because I wanted to get wine cheaply, expensive <laughs> wine cheaply. That was really my, my motivation at that time. Um, But I did want to know about the winemaking process as well. And so after a while, I I started to focus on the Napa wines and um, looking toward the up-and-comers in Napa that weren't famous yet, but made really good wine. And um, I was able to help them market their wines because they weren't very good at that. And they became my friends. Mm -hmm. And so then um, after a few years, I formed a partnership with one of them, and we started doing custom crush work at Napa, and um, we did that for 10 years. And in 1998, that company dissolved, and I came to Willamette Valley to search for, by that time I had made a little bit of money, and I came to Napa Valley to search for the ideal place to start Utopia, which was a business card and a business plan at that time. And um, after a couple of years, it led me to a farm on Ribbon Ridge, which um, is now the La Pre du Coal Vineyard. That was in October of 2000. And when I got there, I was like, yeah, this is okay. But that... The spot right up the hill, meaning where my current vineyard is, mm-hmm. and um, it wasn't on the market. But there was a little ranch house there, and there were horses and a pasture. And um, I drove up and knocked on the door, and the owner was home, and he ended up selling me the property on the spot that day. So that's how I got Utopia. And um, took me two years to get my first vines in the ground, and then I um, went from there. I had four plantings, and I've got 17 acres under vine on a total of 19 acres. And I've got 12 Pinot Noir clones and the three low yielding Dijon Chardonnay clones. And um, my first vintage was 05, where I made 97 cases of an estate Pinot. Um, Today I make around 2,500 cases annually from the estate, but then I I make other little bottlings um, from contracted fruit as well.
0: So we'll come back to Oregon, but for, I'm curious about California first, since we always nice to take advantage of people who've worked in California. Tell me about that time in Napa. You're talking about kind of the up and coming part of the industry before it became what Napa is today. So tell me about being involved in that and and kind of befriending some of those to be soon to be big time winemakers.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was an exciting time. You know, um, there was a lot going on, and as a um, retailer, wholesaler, importer, exporter, I had a lot of distributors calling on me, both national and international. And so um, I would set up meetings on the weekends when I wasn't working at my day job. And they would come in and we would taste. And um, I had a good friend by the name of Ron Wiegand, who was a master of wine and also a master psalm at that time. I think there were only 75 in the world at that time. And he was my tasting partner. And he taught me a lot about um, the sensory aspects of wine and um, of course, I took a lot of wine appreciation and some of the um, UC. Davis Extension courses and those kinds of things um, at that time. But um, yeah, I mean, every, every week we would set up tastings, and um, I also had a circle of friends, um, you know down there that we would do dinners, and, and um, you know, everybody had a cellar, so we would pull out older bottlings and um, uh, you know, it was it was just a great it was a great experience, and I was very enamored with Burgundy, both white and red. And so, if you're familiar with Burgundy, there's just a tons of little, you know, plots that they make wines from in the different regions. And so, it, I mean, you can explore it. You know, it's a it's like a lifetime of exploration that you can do on those wines. And I was really fascinated by that. And that was one of the things that really drew me to the Willamette Valley was the fact that they were making world-class Pinot Noir. And I was a little bit of an anomaly in Napa because I kept um, hosting wine tastings for Oregon Pinot. Mm -hmm. And most of the people there um, didn't know that Oregon even made wine. I mean, every time I brought it up, people would say, oh, they make wine in Oregon? I didn't know that. Um, and so I became kind of like known for being this Pied Piper of Oregon Pinots in Napa. And I had Oregon wines in my, in my business um, where everybody else obviously was selling California wines or imported wines. But, but I was kind of known for that.
0: Tell me about how, how Napa changed while you were working there. Obviously you were there during the boom. Uh, tell me about when you got to Napa versus when you left it. What were the differences? How had it changed?
1: Well I mean it was um, it was already um, pretty well established as compared to what you've seen in the last 20 years in the Willamette Valley. Um, they were kind of where we are today back in the 80s, right? There were lots of big wineries still and there's still a number of smaller wineries um, and vineyards. Um, so it was a mix but but it was, it was still a pretty, you know, it was a pretty stable um, industry in those days. There was there was probably 250 wineries when I first got to Napa. There's around 400 now versus the 100 or so when I came to Willamette Valley versus the 700 now. So, um, And Napa's a smaller valley, right? Mm-hmm. It's 35 miles long, um, not 100 miles long like Willamette Valley and it's only five miles wide at its widest point. So um, everything is all vineyards. I mean, literally, they blow up hillsides to plant more vineyards there. Um, so it was, it was pretty well established. It was a more mature business, but you know, I was working with people that, that you know, were contracting for the fruit from growers and then um, taking them into places like Napa Wine Company or Laird Family or um, Round Hill or places like that where, where they did custom crutch work. Um, and that was, that was cool because there was a lot of wineries in, a, in one winery, mm-hmm. um, and so, you know, we got to go in the cellar and taste a lot of different wines from barrel, which was, which was also very educational, and, um, you know, I don't want to drop any names, but, yeah, we, sometimes our thief would go into somebody else's barrel when we're back in the cellar. <laughs> Nobody was looking, but, yeah, um, it was, um, it was it was really, you know, an exciting time to be there.
0: So tell me about the, the the shop a little bit. I'm curious. Uh, when you set it up, did you have what was your ambition for what you were going to do with the business? Did you talk about great wine at a cheap price, obviously as the, as the kind of the goal? But what were your hope What were your hopes kind of for the business? And, and did you is that what ended up happening, or did something else end up happening with it?
1: Well, I was working in tech, and um, that was um, you know. After, you know, five or six years, that's when the internet became pretty big, or at least was kicking off, and you were getting things like wine.com and things like that were starting to happen. So um, I had my brick and mortar location in uh, Napa, right off Highway 29 and California Avenue, if you know, if you know Trankus, it's, it's right there. And, um, and it was a warehouse, essentially, But in the front part, I had a small tasting room. Um, Basically, it was a round conference table. And um, if somebody would come in, um, I mean, it would be by appointment. And then I would ask them a, a number of questions about you know what wines they like and what you know uh, what their current tastes were, etc. And then I would taste some wines with them. And then based on that, I would mix up a case of white, and a case of red, or two cases of red, or whatever. Back in my warehouse, my warehouse was just rows of boxes of, of really good like selection of fine wines mm-hmm. versus a collection, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, that was that was the business, and eventually I took all those wines that were in the physical location. I put them online, and I called that business was called Online Cellars, C E L L A R S. Mm-hmm. It's still out there, and um, and that was that was actually a successful business. You know, I was able to promote it, and uh, you know, it's still going. So. <laughs> must have done something right i mean it didn't go through multiple ownerships like wine.com so or hundreds of millions of dollars in investment um so i did everything myself pretty much and um and yeah i mean it was just a way to get access to to high-end wines you know at a a discounted price and um you know by selling those wines then i could reinvest and get more wine (laughs) (laughs) so um so that was great but then um, when we started doing Custom Crush, that's when I really got interested in winemaking and wanted to use my science background to um, understand that more and I went in, you know, I did wine studies at Chemeketa and, um, you know, that was, that was pretty straightforward really, mm-hmm. given my background and um, I started, Utopia started producing in '05. And um, I was making wine, um, well, the first year I was over at uh, doing alternating proprietorship at at Josh Bergstrom's Mm -hmm. winery. But then the year after that I left and I went to the Winemaker studio Mm -hmm. and I was there until 2016. And and then I um, spent a couple years at 12th and Maple and then in 18 we purchased this property. And that's when I converted the building to my new winery and did my first crush there in 2019. About 45 tons we brought in and processed there. And it's a really awesome building. I'll take you down and show you. Awesome, excellent, excellent. Um, You mentioned last question about
0: California before we get into Oregon a bit more. You mentioned kind of being the Pied Piper of Oregon wine there in Napa. Tell me the reaction uh, people had when you did give them an Oregon Pinot Noir. Did the, did
1: the recognition grow? Was there, Were the people pretty happy about the wines you were choosing? The, within my circle of friends, it definitely grew and people were really impressed with the Oregon Pinots because you know we would set up flights of blind we always tasted blind Mm -hmm. and so we would set up flights with um you know with burgundies and I would put in a ringer from Oregon and um and then we would do you know multiple flights where we would set up you know, um, different regions from Burgundy and then different regions, you know, California, Oregon, New Zealand, et cetera. And um, the Oregon wines always did very well um, in the blind tastings. They always were in the top, you know, um, echelon of the wines. Mm-hmm. So so people were definitely uh, impressed. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, and I brought back a lot of uh, Willamette Valley Pino in those days for people. Mm-hmm. You mentioned kind of coming up here and looking for
0: the, looking for the perfect spot for, for Utopia. What were you looking for? What was it about this spot that
1: drew you to, to it? Well, I mean, the characteristics for this uh, particular climate here, um, you need to be between 250 and 800 feet uh, elevation. Um, you want good ventilation to reduce the, the disease pressure. You want the proper orientation right. You want the right soil types obviously and topography and that site really had everything. It's at 500 feet. It's all south facing. It's gently sloped. Um, it's Willa Kinsey soil series. So it's uh, marine sedimentary, low fertility, good drainage. Um, and then, um, you know, when I designed the vineyard, I did it a little bit differently. Instead of putting a couple of clones, I put 12 clones on smaller blocks of one acre mm-hmm. and approximately. And um, that gave me lots of tools in the winery mm-hmm. because of the varying growing season. It really gives me a lot of flexibility to blend. I, I um, ferment all the wines individually and then I blend prior to bottling. Mm-hmm. So it gives me a lot of granular control over the, over the finished product, I think. Um, but that, at that time, nobody was really doing that. Um, now more people are doing that.
0: I'm curious. Uh, you you had the you of the idea of winemaking, but the vineyard itself that's that's a, that's a whole different ballgame from what you were doing before. What, yeah. what gave you the idea to, to plant a vineyard and to and to kind of take on that responsibility and, and, and Instead are just making
1: wine? Well, when, uh, in Napa, um, we were contracting for fruit, and when those contracts expired, the growers took them back. Mm-hmm. And so I realized at that point that it, to have the ultimate control, you need to own the land. Um, and so I wasn't going to own the land in Napa. Uh, so um, so that was why the Willamette, that was one reason why the Willamette Valley was attractive. I mean if if I could have afforded the land in Napa I might not have come to Willamette Valley but I saw the ground floor opportunity at that time and I believed in Willamette wines and I believed that it was going to grow and that it was going to become the next Napa eventually and so um, it was I looked at it as a once in a lifetime opportunity, something that I could do. And so I just did it. You know, he <laughs> said, you know, if, to do it, you have to do it. You have to take action. You know, you can't just dream about it. And so, you know, I figured, well, I'll buy the land and then we'll go from there. You know, but it's first things first. And I mean, I spent two years looking for the ideal spot. I didn't want to make utopia. If it wasn't, if everything wasn't right, you know, and I, and as ideal as I could get it. So, and as soon as I saw the spot, even though it was just a horse pasture, I mean, I could squint and I could see the vineyard, you know, right there, uh, the vision for it. And so um, it, that was inspiring. And, and I knew that I had something. Um, and then when the guy just you know, blurted out the price. The first thing he said to me, it was like, "Okay, well, this must be meant to be because <laughs> I never thought that you would actually sell it to me. I just thought I had to ask, um, otherwise I would never know." And um, so, so it was pretty shocking, really, you know, because I had, I was living in the Bay Area and working in tech. I had my wine company in Napa, and um, when I left that morning, I, I flew up on Southwest. I left the house around 5 in the morning because I was going to fly back that night and I was looking at a couple sites and the last thing I said to my wife is, don't worry, I'm just going to look. I'm not going to buy anything. (laughs) You know, you think I'm crazy, you know? And um, when I came home, I had to tell her, well, yeah, we bought this farm, we're buying this farm in Oregon, but you're going to love it. It's going to be great. And I have three daughters and, you know, they grew up in the Bay Area, so they were city girls. Mm -hmm. So, um, coming to the Willamette Valley, and believe me, Ribbon Ridge was pretty remote back in the day, it's changed a lot now. But in those days, there were no lights on the hills or anything. I mean, it was pitch black at night. And, you know, we arrived in September and um, it rained for six months, so it was not, the, you know, they weren't that enamored with their dad there for that first winter. <laughs> yeah, I can yeah. imagine. I can yeah. imagine.
0: You mentioned before we started taping. You were, t- you were talking about the, the the site you have here and kind of the work you're doing. Tell me about the initial vineyard and and the work you had to do to turn it from horse pasture into vineyard that you that you wanted it to be.
1: Well, fortunately, that site was cleared. There were no trees on it, mm-hmm. so we didn't have to do any logging or, or cut down a single tree. It was a, it was literally a horse pasture, um, and so you know we had to um, amend the soils and and obviously rip it and disk it mm-hmm. and get it ready for planting and then. You have to get your vines and i wanted some you know some vines that were that were pretty special like heirloom clones that had to be made you know they weren't at the nursery you had to we had to contract for them and then wait a year to get them um so minimum a year and so um that's why it took among you know all those other things to get it ready um it took uh two years from the time i purchased the property to plant my first vines and that's why my first 97 cases that I produced were off four acres that I planted in 2002, and then I did three subsequent plantings did you have in mind a
0: uh, sort of a grape growing philosophy? You mentioned site philosophy that you were looking for. Did you have a, a particular way you wanted to farm as, as you were getting started?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, um, in putting together the vineyard, I, I talked to a lot of um, different, you know, viticulturalists and winemakers and went around and did a lot of research tasting the wines and getting familiar with the characteristics of the different clones and um, understanding the, the rootstock and clone combinations and um, figuring out what I wanted, what I wanted to do and that's what led me to want to have that variety of clones um, so that, you know, I could make, one way to make a more complex wine is by blending, you know, having maximum clonal diversity and when I started I was blending everything together so even though you know in third leaf or fourth leaf um, I was making a fairly complex um, blend of those clones. Um, It started out being six clones but it eventually got to 12 with the subsequent plantings Mm -hmm. and then in 2010 in my my um, final planting I added the Chardonnay vines.
0: You talked about being Ribbon Ridge and how it's changed a bit. Tell me about Ribbon Ridge as you got here and what what has what is special about this now that now the sub AVA Ribbon Ridge, why why it is special among the AVAs?
1: Well, um, you know, it, it when I came there was maybe seven, maybe I may I was like the eighth vineyard, I think. Mm-hmm. On Ribbon Ridge. There's over forty vineyards there now. Um, and more all the time. I mean I'm planting one in the next couple of years, but um, there's been quite a few and um, you know it's the smallest AVA of all the of all the AVA's in Oregon. We have 19 now and Ribbon Ridge is by far the tiniest so there's there's less coming out of here generally making it more valuable. Um, the this, It's a warmer um, AVA. It has the marine sedimentary soils versus the the more volcanic soils that you see in the surrounding Shale- the Mountains and uh, Dundee Hills and Yamhill Carlton. I mean they're all a mix but but we're primarily marine sedimentary because Ribbon Ridge was created through the upheaval of the tectonic action 40 to 50 million years ago when the mountains came up and the sea got pushed back. And this little strip of land, it got left behind. It was seacoast. And so it got left behind. So it's uniquely um, marine sedimentary soils throughout. Um, And um, those are warmer and drier soils during the growing season. Mm -hmm. And in a cool climate, that helps the fruit to fully ripen, even in an average year, like we had in 2019. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing about Ribbon Ridge is it's a lot of family-owned wineries. You know, It's a place where people can come, and I think of it as kind of like this safe haven, where you can come and be relaxed and comfortable, meet the owners a lot of times and the winemakers, the vineyard managers that are all rolled into one like me you know and um and um you know it's um it's just a place where you can you can come and relax and if you want to learn about uh wine grape growing or viticulture or winemaking or what the process is or the philosophy um and not feel intimidated you know um it's a very it, to me it's just this kind of i call it a safe haven for wine enthusiasts mm-hmm. to come and um, we've got a lot of famous vineyards in this very small area, so um, you know we have a preponderance of of uh, small wineries, but big names, and you know a lot of award-winning wines, and um, you know I just think it's really special um, place for all those reasons.
0: You talked about learning uh, learning winemaking, uh, kind of into the career a little bit. Tell me about the process of learning winemaking and what it was about
1: that specifically that appealed to you and uh, in, in where you were? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm still learning, frankly, because you know, it's more than a lifetime of knowledge. If you want to be a winemaker, then, um, you know, and, and things, you know, it changes. Your, your tastes evolve, your style evolves, um, but you have to have a good you know, idea of what you want, what you're trying to do, and and what style of wine that you want to make. I mean, a lot of that is going to be determined by the region that you're in and the varieties that you're growing, obviously. But with Pinot Noir, there's a lot of different styles, and there's a lot of different ways you can go. And every decision that you make in the vineyard and every decision that you make in the winery is going to influence that final product and make a different style. And so. For me, it's always been about experimentation. One of the biggest things that I've learned is that um, if I like the fruit, then I know I'm going to like the wine. So, um, you know, you'll hear winemakers often say, you know, it all starts in the vineyard. It's true, you know, and winemakers understand that at a very deep level. um, Because if you have good, clean fruit that's fully ripe and evenly ripe, and if you've done what you need to do in the vineyard um, in terms of canopy management during the growing season and aggressive thinning and aggressive defoliation, um, you know, early on without trying to hedge your bets and really go for quality. We farm organically. It's another thing I like about Ribbon Ridge is we've got a lot of organic slash biodynamic farms here. And um, in my free time, I'm president of River Ribbon Ridge Wine Growers Association. And our biggest initiative that we're implementing this year is a pledge that all of our members are signing to go herbicide-free on Ribbon Ridge. Mm-hmm. So all of our members are going to eliminate glyphosates in their vineyards and the eventual goal is to get everybody to be organic slash biodynamic, mm-hmm. which a number of us already are. But I mean, that's, that's pretty cool, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes a better wine, you know, makes a better product at the end of the day. And, you know, we're a lot of family-owned wineries. I live on my vineyard, so why would I wanna spray poison out there? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have this really vested interest in the land and preserving it for future generations, mm-hmm. you know, part of, you know, um, utopia for me is the legacy that I leave for my children and hopefully my grandchildren, mm-hmm. and so that those are that's really important mm-hmm. piece of it. What do you want people to
0: take away from your wines? What what would be the the ideal say re- reaction to drinking one of your wines?
1: Well, I want them to think it's delicious, of course. But um, I mean, I'm trying to make wines that are, at the core, that they you you taste the authentic fruit you know, from the grape, and then with Pinot Noir, I want it to be, you know, I want to have the spice and the earth um, and the fruit, but I want the core of the wine is to be the fruit, and I want the other more nuanced characteristics to emanate from that core, Um, but I want it to be complex, and I want it to be, um, you know, I want it to be good in the beginning, the middle, and the end, right, so, finish is very important, having the wine finished clean. And, um, but yeah, for, you to, for it to be true, authentic, you know, Pinot Noir, that's, that's the main thing. And a reflection of the growing season. You know, we're trying to make the best wine we can, like everybody, I mean, hopefully, and, um, and, and that's, that's the goal. But the goal is also to make it a true reflection of the growing season. And if you're doing things by hand and you're doing it right, then that's what you should get. You get this um, reflection of each year, and it's the uniqueness um, of each vintage that's so special. I mean, that's what I celebrate with my wines, is like when I taste say a 2011, which was the coldest growing season that we've experienced in the Willamette Valley since 1880, or 2010, which was very similar, you you taste what happened in the vineyard and you taste what happened with the weather and what happened in the cellar in order to, you know, in a year like that where you're gonna have less ripe fruit, where you have less heat and less light diffusion and maybe a little thinner skins on the grapes, et cetera, that's really gonna affect the wine. But then the things that you did in the cellar to enrich it, um, um, you know, in terms of stirring the leaves or, or, you know, whatever it was that you did, you know, um, to, to get everything out of those grapes. Um, and then you, get, you end up like a year like that where you have this unbelievable silky texture and still really focused flavors. But everything's nuanced and it becomes more about the texture than the flavors versus a, f- a hot year like we've had, you know, from 14 to 18 where you have this, you know, layers and layers of rich fruit. And, and more tannins um, and definitely more texture in the wine um, but you know from one year to the next you get this really unique um, uh, expression um, of the of the wine and so uh, or of the vineyard and I mean that's that's pretty cool we
0: talked about earlier about 19 specifically, just coming off of that being such a different year than we've had. Tell me about dealing with that, uh, especially coming off of five straight, fairly similar warm vintages. What did yeah. you do differently this
1: year? So, um, well, I mean, it was a cooler year, obviously, and we had more moisture than we've had the last five years. Um, so we had less light, less heat. If you look at, if you plotted the the growing degree days um, versus historic, versus the last five years prior to this, you would see that um, 2019 put us right at the average, pretty much, um, really, really close to that line. Um, in terms of the, the amount of cumulative heat during the growing season. Um, and um, we did have moisture around harvest. I mean, September was wetter than October, right? We started our harvest on September 25th, and then we also picked on the 26th, and then we finished on the 1st and 2nd of October. Um, so we were well over 100 days from flowering at that point. So the beauty of a little bit cooler year was we got lots of hang time, and so the sugars didn't get out so far ahead of the phenolic ripening that you see in those warmer years. And so you have a really balanced fruit. Um, We were lucky because Ribbon Ridge is surrounded by the Coastal Range and the Chehalem Mountains, which are taller mountains. And since most of the storms blow in from the west, um, we have this little rain curtain from those larger uh, mountains. And so the clouds tend to skirt over us more and we get less moisture. And so even though there was a lot of moisture um, we got less of it. It's spotty, right? Like if you just over a few miles over like in the Dundee Hills or Shahala Mountains, they saw a lot more rain. And then the other, um, the other saving grace was unlike 2013 where it was rainy and warm, which created a lot of disease pressure in, uh, on a lot of vineyards. Um, This year, the temperatures were cool, and so the fruit um, stayed firm. We didn't get so much moisture that the fruit got soft, um, and with the cool temperatures, it kept the fruit firm. So my bricks on all of my Pinot lots range from 22.3 to 24.1 with lots of hang time um, and really good, you know, acidity and balance in the fruit. So um, nice pHs. I mean, didn't really have to do much with the fruit in the winery. Um, and so um, I'm really, the the wines, are, they're super dark and rich and um, complex. Of the flavors are, are amazing right now. So I'm really, really excited. I think there'll be some of the better wines um, coming out of the Willamette Valley because we got, you know, everything that we're historically known for, right, in, in a year like that, if you did it right. You know, I'm talking
0: about uh, being both vineyard manager and winemaker here. Uh, tell me about balancing that. Uh, obviously, those are both a lot of work. How do you balance your time uh, throughout the year?
1: Um, I decide early in the morning which things I'm gonna drop that day, and then <laughs> I do the other things, basically. But, um, you know, the, the sun drives, the vineyard right and so um, if you if you want to get the best result in the vineyard then it's best to be a little bit ahead of things Mm -hmm. and so i try to stay ahead of things in the vineyard like i'll defoliate um, a little bit earlier probably than most sites as soon as i see flowering Um, i'll uh, thin my first thinning pass a little bit early and um, and then um, you know that puts me in a good position as things go on to to do the other things that that i need to do and um, just stay like stay caught up or slightly ahead of what the vineyard needs Um, and then and then get a good result and good fruit makes good wine and so um, it's much easier to work with good ripe clean fruit as a winemaker so that that makes my job much easier in the winery and then it's just a matter of getting everything out of it shepherding it you know not Intervening very much, you know, not over-processing the grapes and just letting them do their thing and keeping them clean and safe and um, you know just watching the chemistry in the must and the chemistry in the wine and um, you know keeping things keeping things uh, where they need to be.
0: You were talking about the way you grow here, uh, all the different Pinot Noir clones and and, uh, Chardonnay clones. You also talked about experimentation. So I'm curious, uh, beyond what you're doing here, what else are you experimenting with?
1: So um, when I talk about experimentation in the winery, I'm talking like bench trials, right, where we're taking small volumes and rushing them through the process to check the effect of it, and then if we like it, we can apply it to some of the larger lots Mm -hmm. or volumes. And um, for me, um, I. And, you know, I like whole cluster. I've been enamored with that. I've done a lot of experimentation with whole cluster where I've done partial whole cluster, you know, 10%, 25%, 50%, 100%. I mean, we've destemmed the fruit and let the stems dry out and then put them back in the vat, you know, to see what that would do. Um, all kinds of different ways of doing it. Um, and um, things like extending my cold soaks. Mm-hmm. So average cold soak might be five days. Um, in 2013, I extended my cold soak on my pinots to 30 days. Okay, so I mean, that's just kind of crazy, right? But um, I, I think it enhances the aromatics on the wine. So things like um, whole cluster fermentations, um, extended cold soaks, um, low SO2 protocols on the wines, um, you know, not, not um, you know, adding a lot, getting good clean fruit, and trying to do this minimalist kind of approach as much as possible. I mean, it's not always possible, you know. Sometimes we need to acidulate the wine and things like that. But that kind of stuff is normal winemaking. Mm-hmm. You know, that's you're going to lose some of that going through fermentations, and so um, you know, that's just a matter of knowing the vineyard and being able to look at the the, you know, the nutrients in the must and know, uh, you know, things and the TA and things like that and know how to adjust and you can do very quick bench trials, you know, am I gonna, you know, you can do one, two, three, four grams per liter and you can go, okay, boom, I know exactly what I want to do, but I always want to try and, you know, do the work, Um, so that when I make a decision about the wine that it's informed. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I try not to cut any corners in the vineyard or the winery to give myself, you know, the best opportunity to end up with a wine that when you come in my tasting room, it's like, I'm really proud of this wine because I'm gonna be the one standing there pouring it for you, okay? It's not somebody that I hire Mm Um, to stand there and and take the criticisms or the compliments or whatever. It's me and I wouldn't want to serve you anything that I wouldn't want to drink myself.
0: With those kind of experimentations, are you looking at making like <clears throat> long-term decisions in terms of like whole cluster, if you, or is that a year-to-year thing? Is it is it based on your fruit, or is it based on more of a I want to make hundred percent whole cluster wine? How do I get to that point?
1: Um, so I like whole cluster a lot, and um, one of the things that is you know kind of conventional wisdom about whole cluster, you know, it's you know people say well it's site specific, it's variety specific. It's region specific, it's vintage specific, it's all these things, right? Um, And so the conventional wisdom is, you know, you don't wanna do whole cluster if the stems are green. Um, So when you pick them, but the stems are always green and when you pick them in the (laughs) Willamette Valley, you know, even in a warm year. So um, one of the things that I've learned through my experience, and I do 100% whole cluster now when I do it, I don't like partial. I like to get the full effect um, if I'm gonna do it and just go on the margin and push it all the way. And I like the effect, but um, normally you would think, well, you know, 14 through 18 where we had these really hot years would be ideal years for doing whole cluster. And I did whole cluster in those years, but um, the ones that are the most interesting to me are the cooler years like 10 and 11 and 13, where you actually get more of an effect because the fruit isn't quite as ripe. And so some of the nuances that you get from those additional tannins and how that affects the flavors in the finished wine um, and then the effect of the spicy characteristics, if you do it correctly, um, that you get from whole cluster. So like some of my favorite whole cluster wines are like my 2011's, um, you know, which Probably most winemakers would not want to do whole cluster in a year like 2011, um, especially 100%. But that's just something that you learn along the way. Um, Because making wine in California is different from making wine in Oregon. California, we have, you know, obviously warmer temperatures. It's not if the fruit's going to get ripe, it's when it's going to get ripe, you know, and how much time do we have um, before it gets ripe. And then um, we're adjusting, you know, we're usually diluting the must in order to reduce the alcohol in the finished wine versus Oregon where you add sugar to get the, you know, if you didn't do it right, which, which, I've never chaptalized my wines because I don't mind lower alcohol either. I like the lower alcohol, more nuanced style of Pinot Noir, those silky textures that you get in the cooler years. Um, and it just requires you to, you have to thin more aggressively in those years, mm-hmm. you know. But if your goal is for quality, then, you know, if I can make the wine 1% better by dropping more fruit prior to Veraison, In my mind, that's an easy decision, you know. Because, and then again, you know, it's it's all about the finished wine.
0: You're talking about making wine in California versus making wine in Oregon. Tell me about the. Industries in general, you have a pretty pretty good amount of experience in both. I'm curious how they compare and contrast it in this day and age. To sort of the best of your best of your knowledge, how does Oregon wine industry compare to California wine industry?
1: So you probably have heard this before, but there's a very collaborative nature in uh, winemaking in the Willamette Valley. A lot of small wineries. You probably know seventy percent of our wineries make. 5,000 cases or less, right? So in California, that's a very small winery, okay? Um, but in Oregon, that's in Willamette Valley, that's 70% of our wineries. That's the preponderance of the wineries out there. And we have this, um, I call it coopetition, right? Because we all cooperate. You know, if my sprayer breaks down and it's gonna rain tomorrow, but I'm only halfway through the vineyard, I can call my neighbor, and no matter what he's doing, he'll literally drop everything and bring me his sprayer so that I can finish spraying before the rain comes. Right? If my neighbor is, you know, harvesting and he needs some some more bins or whatever it is, I mean, or if we're in the cellar and you know um, he has a question about the wine or I do, you know, we're just totally sharing information, and that is something that is really unique in Willamette Valley in my experience and I call it the multiplier effect Right? Because if you think about it, we've been making, you know, I mean the very first vine was only planted in 1965. So about 55 years. I mean that's, that's not even a drop in the bucket in terms of wine regions. And look how far we've come. And it's not just us saying it. You see the big wineries coming here because they know we have a good thing. You see the recognition in with the industry experts, you know, all saying, that Oregon makes the best New World Pinot Noir, and it's pretty much across the board. So, I mean, it's, it's uh, ag- widely agreed upon, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and validated, and I think a big part of that is the fact that we are so collaborative. But then once you bottle the wine, you have to sell it. And so that's the competition part, right? Um, and we're all competing for that same piece of pie And so I like the term coopetition because we'll help each other. We'll give each other the shirt off our backs, but at the end of the day, once we bottle that wine, we want to sell it. And there's only so many wine consumers, and and so we're in competition in that way. But everybody here, I would say, or almost everybody realizes that our, our boats rise and fall on the same tide, pretty much. So, what do you see the Oregon wine industry as you look ahead, say, ten years in the
0: future? What 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 will have changed? What are what are you concerned about? What are you hoping for?
1: Well, I mean, I see some of the leaders here, you know, really pushing for, um, you know, maintaining the quality that we've become known for, and you know, I support that. I think it's really important. I don't want to take away tools from winemakers. That um, you know, blending is a big part of winemaking. Um, my Pinot Noirs and my Chardonnay are hundred percent of the variety, but some people like to blend, you know, and there's right now the rule is 10%. Most states, that's 25%. Mm -hmm. And so we're already pretty strict. They're making it 100%, or they're attempting to. And, um, you know, that's caused a bit of a schism, I think, with some of the wineries. And, um, you know, I can appreciate both sides of the argument. Um, It doesn't really affect me personally in my winemaking because I'm making 100% varieties. But for some people, it might affect them adversely in their style of their winemaking that they want to do. Uh, for Willamette Valley, I think there's 18 varieties that are going to be affected if that goes through. Pretty sure it's going to go through. Um, and so um, I would like to see you know, more discussion and, more, um, you know, more understanding of issues like that um, before any decisions are made. Um, and really, understanding you know what are the benefits of that versus the cons you know the pros and cons um for different people um because i mean it's important that we maintain our camaraderie um, and that we and that we continue to you know to really keep that because it's it's to me in my experience it's it's very unique part of the winemaking experience here in willamette valley so i i see both sides of it and uh but i do appreciate you know the that the founders and the visionaries that started this industry, um, that they had the vision to make those very strict guidelines, and that obviously has contributed greatly to the success of Oregon Pinot. So, you know, it's always hard to argue with success, right? <laughs>
0: Are there any uh, uh, other obstacles that uh, on the horizon that you're concerned about that may affect the industry, vineyard-specific or industry-specific?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of, I mean, as a small business, you know, you're in agriculture, we're growing the grapes, so we have labor issues, you know, that's become a huge um, issue, getting labor, the cost of labor, um, bigger wineries coming in, you know. I mean it's a double edged sword. They wouldn't be coming here if we weren't successful. So, like I said, it validates everything that we're doing and, and it's a it's a you know, it's a sign of success. It goes with success. Um, but they can afford to pay more. And, if, and there are labor shortages. So, I mean, we literally have crews not showing up to work because they've been offered a dollar more to go over to some other vineyard. Um, and then every year the, those costs are increasing. And if you're a small winery, you know, there's only, you have to absorb those costs most of the time. You can't really raise the price on your bottle when it's already $50 a bottle, right? Um, because it's, it's um, you know, pricing is a combination of what else is there, supply and demand, cost obviously is a factor Um, the quality of the wine the perception of the quality of the wine right all of those things the experience now that goes with it especially with Millennials right they don't just want a glass of wine they don't want wine as a beverage they want wine as an experience like everything and so you know, there's those, those are a lot of challenges. And then we have all the regulatory challenges. Um, you know, shipping compliance laws are, are a huge drain on our resources for a small winery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, it would be great if they could come up with a national rule or just charge us one fee up front based on our sales instead of making us go and report and pay taxes on a monthly basis and coordinate with multiple... State organizations within every given state just so that you can ship a bottle of wine and pay the tax. You know, we're happy to pay the tax, but make it more streamlined because um, it literally, I mean, I spent three hours last week, I won't say the state, figuring out my taxes and it ended up being $14 to pay that state. I mean, they lost money, I lost money in time, and so. Um, there has to be a better way to do that, you know. Set it, you know. Set a range, you know. If you're zero to a million dollars in sales, then either waive it because it's not worth the time to do it, or or just charge us a flat hundred bucks a year or something, you know, and um, and allow us to not have to continue reporting except once a year, um, report, you know, our total. Uh, volume or whatever instead of monthly Um, because you're you're coordinating with the Franchise Tax Board in each state and the ABC and in every state they don't even talk to each other so you know you'll it's 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 pretty crazy so regulatory compliance and then just even the local you know um, uh, ordinances and stuff here right Um, and a lot of the you know we're in we're in rural Oregon and you know, this was timber and cattle, and you know other crops. And you know, there's a there's a there's I'd say that there's a bit of resentment toward the wineries because the wineries have really come in and um, you know we're 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 taking over a lot of the land. And and I think some of the some of the other people that aren't wineries see that, and some of the people that've been here historically, you know, see us as encroaching on you know some of the historical aspects of it, but. Um, you know, the wine is what's driving the economic development for these counties, and, um, you know, we're pretty good stewards of the land, and we're trying to do things right, and, um, you know, we don't expect to get resentment from our local, you know, government officials, you know, and there is there is some of that, so I'd really like to see a better understanding, and, um, you know, we're you know, we're here, we're not going away, um, we're, we employ the most people, we pay the most taxes, we give back to the community in, in huge ways and, um, you know, we're, we're good stewards of the land so, you know, I'd like to see people work with us a little bit better in, in, the, in the local government in, and the state both.
0: What about as you look look ahead for yourself and for your business? Clearly we're here on your new site mm-hmm. in, your, in your guest house, so you're acquiring a vineyard here. So how, as you look ahead for yourself and for Utopia, what do you see? What are you kind of hoping for?
1: Well, you know, I wanna make about 5,000 cases a year. So these new vines will get me to that level. And at that level, I can still do everything myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, it's a natural progression for us. You know, I was paying a lease at another winery, Um, and when you're making 3,000 cases a year and you're paying by the ton, that's a significant capital outlay every year to make your wine at somebody else's winery. So, you know, at a certain point, it makes sense to take that capital and invest it in your own asset. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, that's what drove this decision. Um, And then finding the ideal property again within Ribbon Ridge, you know, I had the same type of epiphany when I came here. And saw that building and realized, you know, that I could take this existing structure and in a very short period of time, turn it into pretty much a state-of-the-art winery with, um, you know, with headroom for growth capacity and everything else that I'm going to need as I increase my production over the next you know 10 to 20 years Mm because i've expected to be very incremental just like it was down below Mm -hmm. um, so that it can be managed correctly Mm -hmm. um, with all the challenges and you know um, other things like climate change and other things that are coming that are already affecting us Mm
0: -hmm. are you planning on planting anything different here or are you sticking with it's a good
1: question (laughs) (laughs) there's um, so many options right Mm -hmm. so um yeah i definitely want to do some different things um, to make it interesting for me um, and fun um, because in the end of the day if you're not having fun then it's way too much work to not have fun and so it's a great it's you know it's a great lifestyle you know if it's something that you enjoy you know if you enjoy the farming and the winemaking and you know the you know what that delivers in terms of your lifestyle and stuff which I do obviously and you know this it hits all my buttons, you know. I make my living. Uh, I, I'm a good steward of the land. We're preserving it for future generations. We're giving back to the community. You know, all of these things that are important and are important to me. Um, wine does that, mm-hmm. you know. Um, farming and, and winemaking does that for me, so so I want to pass that on. and. Um, you know, I want to. I want to continue to make it fun, and so that means different varieties. And you know, it'd be 10, 12 years before these vines are even mature. So by that time, I think we can probably ripen some different varieties here. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I'm looking at all kinds of different options. You know, I like I like everything good. So we look for some more. You know, I like Rhone. I like Bordeaux. I like you know, I want to do something, you know, that, that's unique and different for this property. So, um, I'm doing a lot of research right now on that.
0: So, you mentioned uh, bringing your family up here. Uh, have you, have you, did your
1: daughters come around to, to rural yes. Oregon? Yes, they all love Oregon. It only took about six months, and, uh, and they all uh, figured it out and uh, my oldest daughter works for me Mm full-time and then my two other daughters they all they all have stayed in Oregon they're all graduated and married and working in their careers and they've all decided that Oregon is where they want to be so so yeah it worked out pretty well and it's great having them nearby Um, one of my son-in-laws also works for me um, part-time during the you know in the tasting room during the summers um, in the high season and probably bring him on full-time at some point now and, um, and then the other, um, my other daughters and their husbands, I mean, one did the electrical in my winery because he's an electrician and, um, you know, another one, you know, eventually I'm gonna wanna bring them all into the business, right? Um, and that's part of the legacy, but, but they all help out when we do, you know, in the summertime, we do all kinds of events um, and we have lots of guests. And so they come and they serve and they, you know, pour the wines and um, clear the tables and, you know, they help, they help us out. So everybody's involved at some level or another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't have any employees that aren't family.
0: <laughs> that's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. Uh, so it's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything I didn't ask that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover today that you'd like to have covered?
1: Um, you know, I think you, I think you covered it. Um, you know, I'm really excited about going forward mm-hmm. here in the Willamette Valley. I think that the Willamette Valley still has a lot of promise, and I think it's going to continue to get uh, more recognition as um, as we go forward. And um, I think it's going to be an interesting future. We're going to see more of the different varieties coming in, um, and more you know uh, more um, people coming in uh, with different ideas, and you know, spurring uh, more thought and uh, I think you know, it'll be this balance between keeping our, what's really unique and special about Oregon with the small family wineries and all the really um, you know, craft kind of wine, even though it's an overused term, that's what we do. Um, and then see how that plays as we bring in more technology and, and, and more um, thought-provoking kind of ideas with more people coming in. So I'm excited. I think I'm just as excited now as I was when I first came here.
0: That's awesome. Well, thank you so much yeah, for your time today. It's a pleasure, Rich. Story with us, and yeah. uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Yeah. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.